Well, uh, this is a new year, and as you uh, probably are aware, anytime that uh, we celebrate a new year, there's often New Year's resolutions, which I'm sure you've probably thought about. Maybe some of you have already established some New Year's resolutions. Oftentimes, they're around the idea of maybe getting more fit. Maybe your New Year's resolution is, I'm going to uh, try to work out more. Or maybe your New Year's resolution is, I'm going to try to eat more healthy. Uh, Sometimes our New Year's resolutions are around uh, stopping certain habits that we've accumulated over time. I'm going to quit X, Y, and Z this upcoming year. Or maybe establish newer habits that you've been intending to uh, implement into your life for quite some time, just haven't gotten around to it. And there's nothing against New Year's resolutions. I don't have any qualms about that. I'm not going to try to argue that you not have New Year's resolutions. I think in many ways they're a good idea. But what I want to do today is I want to suggest one particular New Year's resolution for all of us to incorporate this upcoming new year. And it's not going to be anything uh, that's uh, novel. In fact, this is something that has been around for many, many years. It's something that uh, has been uh, mentioned quite extensively in Scripture and in church history. But for one reason or another, it often, over time, gets put on the back burner. And we, we think about it only on occasions. But it's something that I believe that if we were to incorporate into our life and we were to make it the number one priority... For this upcoming new year, it has the possibility to change everything in our life. Now, I know that's a really tall uh, uh, pitch. I know for uh, some of you may hear that and think, oh, you sure, you know, I, I'm not quite confident that uh, this one thing can literally change everything in my life. But I am confident that in our time here together today, I will be able to make the case biblically that if we were to incorporate this one change into our life, it could change your marriage. It could change your uh, relationship with your kids, your work, just the way you see the world itself. It has the potential to change everything because this is at the heart of what God has created us to do. And so often we get away from it, and that's what leads to so many other problems in our life. And just to go ahead and give you all the, the, um, the goodies up front, here's the thing that I want all of us to try to focus on this upcoming year. is focusing and practicing to draw our attention on the presence of God in our day-to-day life. So often, especially today, we live in such a topsy-turvy, busy, uh, going 90 miles an hour type of world where there are so many good things that we're doing that we lose focus on the single most important thing in our life. And that is God's presence in our life. His desire for us to have a relationship with him. And that at every moment of every single day, God is with you. God is present in the most mundane things of your life and the most life-altering things of your life. He is there and he wants you to be aware of his presence. I was recently drawn, um, my focus was drawn attention to this idea of the presence of God in our life by a story uh, from a, a monk, a French monk in the 1600s. His name was Nicholas Herman. Many of you probably aren't familiar with Nicholas, but he grew up in the 1600s in France during a time where there was incredible upheaval. There was a war that was rocking Europe at that time where Protestants and Catholics were fighting amongst one another trying to see who would have the ultimate sway over the European continent. And uh, Nicholas, he was about 16 years of age at the time when this was all going around and he was extremely impoverished. 
His family didn't have anything. He had many brothers and sisters. They couldn't afford to feed uh, all the children that they had. So Nicholas decided, you know what? My life doesn't really amount to much. The only way I'm going to survive in this world is if I enlist in the army. And hopefully, uh, I know it's going to be dangerous, but hopefully at least then I'll be able to have some food each day. I can at least count on three square, uh, square meals a day. And so at 16, he enlisted in the French army. And as he was in battle during that time, he was severely wounded in a number of different ways, not only emotionally from all the things that he saw, but also physically he suffered a wound uh, to his back that left him in many ways crippled for the rest of his life. He could still walk around, but there was just a debilitating pain that he carried with him throughout the rest of his life. And so he had to uh, come out of the army because he was no longer fit for duty, and the only thing he could find to do was to be a footman. And uh, for those who don't know, footman was basically like a glorified butler. But the problem with Nicholas is he was so clumsy, not just because of his own personality, but also because of the war wounds that he had suffered. And he, according to his own testimony, he broke nearly everything he touched. And so eventually he was fired from that job, and he didn't know what he was going to do with his life. And so he decided that he would enlist into a monastery. And he wasn't educated enough to be a priest, and so the only work that they found for him to do was to sit in the kitchen and clean pots and pans and occasionally cook. And for the rest of his life, all he did was clean pots and clean pans, and occasionally he would mend the the shoes of the priest. And that was it. He never wrote a book. He never preached a sermon. He never had, in many ways, if we were to look in on his life, anything that would amount to any kind of significance. He should have been forgotten from the annals of history. But there was something different about Nicholas that caught other people's attention. First, he caught the attention of those priests that were in the monastery. Eventually, he started catching the attention of nobles there in the area. And people would flock from all around to come and visit this little cook. And the thing that set him apart from everyone else was the fact that he was practicing the presence of God in his life. When he was cleaning pots and pans, he was aware that God was with him even there. When he was cobbling shoes, he was aware that God was with him there. Everything he did was an act of worship. Everything he did, he did for the glory of God. He, he would constantly be in prayer with God. He would constantly be thinking about God. He was aware that God was with him through every part of life. And because of that, there was this peace that just rested over him. There was this wisdom that didn't come from books and it didn't come from classroom settings. It just came from being in the presence of God day in and day out. And because of that, he had incredible influence throughout his life. After he died, again, he didn't write any books, but people who were so impressed with just uh, the life of this humble person collected all the various letters that he had written to various friends and they compiled them together. And now it's, uh, it comprises a book called Practicing the Presence of God that has influenced people from countless generations throughout uh, church history and has uh, been translated in many different languages. And it's all because... He was aware of God's presence in his life. And so I don't know where you are, and I don't know what kind of shortcomings you may feel that you have. Maybe you don't feel like you're the smartest or or you're the most uh, skilled or whatever it may be. It doesn't matter about you. It doesn't matter about me. It matters about the God that we serve and the fact that he is alive and well and he wants to show up and show out and display his glory through you if we'll simply be aware that he's in our life and moving and working.
So that's what I want to spend our time with today. And uh, what I want to do is I want to look at a particular passage in God's Word where God shows a, a, in a very uh, explicit way the importance of his presence in our life. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a little context of what we're going to be looking at here today. In God's word, what we see is from the very beginning, starting in Genesis 1-1, we see that God spoke the world into existence. And God didn't need anything from anyone, but he decided that he wanted to share himself with creation. And so he decided to create this world, and the pinnacle of his creation was mankind. He created Adam and Eve. And he wanted to walk in fellowship with them, and he wanted to share his presence with them. And they experienced something that most of us can only dream of, and that was unfettered, unhindered presence and access to God the Father. Each day in the cool of the evening, they would walk with God in the garden. They had fellowship with him. But unfortunately, that didn't last very long because eventually they got distracted and they got their eyes off of God, and they got their eyes more focused on what they didn't have, namely the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they, di- they distrusted God, they took of the fruit, and they fell. And ever since that point, God has been busy trying to build back a bridge to a relationship with his chief creation, mankind. And from the very outset, he said that there would come one from mankind that would crush the head of the serpent. He promised that through Abraham, a chosen uh, um, individual within humanity, that that through him he was going to bring about the Messiah, that he was going to make this great nation, and that he was going to give them a promised land, and through this people he would give them the Messiah. And so for years and years they waited, and it seemed like it would never come to pass. Eventually, Abraham did have many, many sons, and he did produce a nation, but that nation was enslaved by the Egyptian people. And for over 400 years, Israel wasted away in slavery. But then finally, God raised up a deliverer called Moses, who uh, through Moses, God worked in a supernatural way to bring the people of Israel out of bondage and lead them to the promised land. But as often happens, God's promises don't happen overnight. God wanted to teach Israel to trust in him, to rely on him. So he led them through the wilderness. And where we're going to pick up in chapter 33 is God has been leading the people of Israel, this newly liberated people, through the wilderness, and he's brought them to a mountain, Mount Horeb, or as some people translate it, it's Mount Sinai. And there they are camped around this mountain, and most scholars believe they are camped around this mountain for about a year, and as they are camped there, they see the glory of the Lord descend upon the mountain, and a fire and thunder and lightning all around the mountain. And the people are worried and they're afraid because they're not used to the presence of the Lord. Because of our sin, we've been separated for so long that we were not used to what it was like to be face-to-face with God. And so they're afraid. And so instead, they ask Moses to go up as their representative. Moses goes up to the mountain. He descends into, or he ascends up into the, the cloud that envelopes that mountain. And for 40 days, they don't see Moses. And the people wait, and they wait, and they wait. And they get tired of waiting. And then they say, you know what? We don't know what happened to Moses. And we don't know how to worship this God. So what do they do? They fall back into what they're used to. 
And then remember back in Egypt, we used to worship gods of gold and silver and gods of, made of all different types of creatures. And so they fashioned for themselves the golden calf, and they began to worship this golden calf. And of course, right around that time is when Moses comes down. God and Moses, they see what the people are doing, and their heart is broken. And there's a plague that breaks out amongst the Israelites. Moses and the Levites, they go and they, they slaughter a number of the folks who were uh, uh, instrumental in leading the people to idolatry. And thousands of Israelites die that day. And can you imagine for just a moment the, the somber mood that's in the camp at that time? They've just been liberated from Israel. They had such promise of what they were about to experience as they go into the promised land. Now they're in the middle of the wilderness and there's death all around them. And they feel like they've dropped the ball and they've messed it up again. And that's where we pick up in chapter 33. And notice what it says. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. Pause there for a moment. Everything sounds good there, right? I mean, yeah, they've messed up. Yeah, they've tripped up. Yeah, they've, they've kind of dropped the ball here. But, okay, God is saying we're, we're not going to stay here. He's also not saying that we have to go back to Egypt because we failed him. He says we are going to move on. He says that even though we've messed up as a people and we've, we've committed this idolatry, he's still going to be faithful to his promises, if for nothing else, for Abraham, for Isaac, and for Jacob. So, okay, all right, we're doing good. But notice what God says next. He says, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing of milk and honey. Now notice this next part. For I will not go in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now that's where the shoe drops. And that's where if you were one of the Israelites hearing this message, your, you would, your heart would just drop to your stomach. For this whole time, you've been waiting for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to fulfill his promises to bring you out of bondage and to bring you into the promised land. And yes, he's going to do it, but he's no longer going to be with us. He was the one who led us out of Egypt. He was the one who's been leading us as a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day through the wilderness. But now, because of what we have just done, he's not going to go with us any further. Because if he were to remain with us, he says, we're so sinful, we're so stiff-necked that he would end up destroying us. Instead, he's going to send a representative, a middleman. I find it interesting the word that, that God uses as he reveals this to Moses. He says, you're a stiff-necked people. And, and what this is basically pointing to is uh, that Israelite people were very much an agrarian type society. They were very much about planting and livestock and things of that nature. And God uses a word to Moses to describe how God feels about his people by saying you're stiff-necked. And the, that word basically means whenever you would plow a field, you would have two oxen. And then you would have a yoke over the neck of those oxen. And you would want them to plow as straight of a line as you can. You don't want them deviating to the right or to the left unless you want them to. And so the only way to truly steer these ox is the plowman would have the, uh, the reins by one hand. 
And then he would have a long staff or stick in the other. And at the end of that stick, oftentimes there would be a little thorn or there would be some kind of a, a uh, needle or a prick on the end of that that you could just tap the ox on the, on the neck to guide them whichever way you wanted them to go. Now, if the ox were sensitive to their neck, if they were paying attention, if they didn't uh, like that pain, then when you would tap them on the neck, they would go away from that pain. You tap them on the other side, they would, and that could keep them in a straight line. But every once in a while, there would be an ox that was stubborn. There would be an ox that would, would just not care how much you tapped or you hit or you swatted them on the neck. They were going to do whatever they wanted to do, and they were not responsive to correction. Now let's pause here for just a moment. How many of us are like this kind of ox? That no matter how much uh, uncomfortable situations and corrections, either God or life or whatever throws our way, we are just stuck in our ways and we're going to do what we want to do regardless of what comes our way. Because that's the way the Israelite people were. They constantly were going back in the direction they wanted to go. And God would bring correction after correction after correction. And they would respond for a moment and they would go right back to whatever they wanted to do. And God was, God was telling Moses, I'm done. I'm tired of it. I'll be faithful because I am faithful. I'll lead you to the promised land because that's what I said I would do. But I'm not going with y'all. Because if I stay with y'all one minute more, I'm going to destroy the entire nation. And so the people were heartbroken. Notice what it says that they did. As soon as they heard this, in verse 4 it says, And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one, no one put on their ornaments. When it means to put on their ornaments, it's just saying that this was a time of mourning. They took off their earrings, the ones that they didn't throw into the fire to make the golden calf. They took off all their, their nice apparel, apparel, and they humbled themselves before God. Now, were they genuine in this? We don't know. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. I like to think that maybe they probably were. But just like most of us, they were humbled and they were mourning in this moment. But when things start to go well again, they'll go right back to their ways because they are a stiff-necked people. Much like I'm a stiff-necked person, much like most of us are stiff-necked as well. What we see here is that when we get distracted and we get our eyes off of God, there is a huge cost to be paid. Imagine, here are the people of Israel. They've seen miracles that we can't even possibly imagine. They've seen the plagues of Egypt rain down upon the most powerful nation in the world and the slaves liberated, not just liberated, but the Egyptians lavished them with gold and silver for the payment of the 450 years of slavery and they just walk out scot-free. They see the Red Sea parted and they walk through it and then it crashed down upon the Egyptian army. They see miracle after miracle after miracle. And now they're standing at this colossal mountain, the mountain of God, and they see God's very presence descended on it, but they get distracted. They take their eyes off of God and they put it back on themselves. Now here's the thing. We don't necessarily run to idols, but we do have things in our own life that distract us from God. Good things that can distract us from God. We have things in our life that God has blessed us with, that he has lavished upon us just because he is a good God, but sometimes those good blessings become a burden and a distraction. 
For some of us, sports can be a distraction, can't they? And we can get so busy taking our kids here and there that we, that we fail to uh, disciple them as we are called to be. We fail to bring them to church and have them to be discipled as we're called to be. For some of us, COVID has been a distraction, and we've used it as an excuse to get away from the things that God wants us to get involved in. Sometimes work can be a distraction, and we can be so busy trying to get ahead in life and and have all the things that, that our parents had or that our friends and neighbors have that we lose out on the greatest thing that God wants for us. There are no limit to the distractions in this life. And the thing I don't want for you this upcoming year is for you to be so distracted on the little mud pies that this world has to offer that you miss out on the banquet of blessings that God wants for you and for your family. Keep your eyes fixed on your Heavenly Father. Focus not just on the blessings that He gives, but focus on Him Because he is the greatest blessing. If this world took everything else away from you and all you had was your relationship with God the Father, that would be enough. That's where we need to be. And if it's anything less than that, then you are lying to yourself and you're cheating yourself out of what is best in this world. But I want you to notice what else. Uh, Look down with me real quick to verse 7. Notice what it says. It says, Moses took his tent, And he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp. Now, pause here for just a moment. Here they've just received news that God is not going with them any longer. He's going to send an intermediary to go with them. Moses, after the whole golden calf uh, incident, he decides, you know what? I'm going to take my tent, and I'm not going to stay here in the little Israelite encampment. I'm going to go outside the camp, far outside the camp, and I'm going to pitch my tent here. And this is where I'm going to meet with God from now on because this has just gotten out of hand. Now imagine what that's uh, causing the Israelite people to think. Not only has God said, I'm not going with you, but now he, here even Moses is pitching his tent outside away from the people because of what they've just done. Their sin not only cost them the lives of thousands of Israelites who died with the plague and died through the slaughter that the Levites uh, um, caused as God led them to uh, wipe out those who led them into idolatry, but now even the presence of God is being taken from them, and the presence of Moses as well. It says, And it was called the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now notice what happens. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle and all the people rose, each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass that when Moses entered to the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. Now notice this next phrase, and this has caused no, uh, no little bit of controversy and, and debate amongst scholars. It says, so the Lord spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart 
from the tabernacle. Now pause here for just a moment. We're going to need to just address that quick little phrase there that it puts out there. Moses is going out of the camp to this tent all by itself to go meet with God. Whenever people see Moses leave the, the larger encampment to go to this tent of meeting, everyone would come out of their tent. They would stand at their tent door. They would watch Moses go meet with God and they would worship as they saw God's glory descend upon that tent. And Moses would talk with God face to face as with a friend. Now here's the part where a lot of people get uh, confused and we're just going to address it briefly here. Uh, a lot of people will find this odd because Scripture seems to indicate in a number of occasions, and we'll see one at the end of this passage, where it says no one can see God face to face. No one can glance at the face of God or else they would die because God dwells in unapproachable light. That his glory is too much for these frail mortal bodies to behold. And so we cannot see God face to face. In fact, we're going to see that God tells Moses in just a little bit that Moses can't see God face to face. And we're going to see that God actually shields Moses and Moses is only able to see the backside of God as he passes by. So what is this actually saying in this passage where Moses is talking to God face to face? What it's actually referring to there is not that Moses is gazing literally into the face of God the Father in all of his glory. But what it most likely is referring to is that God is speaking with Moses and Moses is speaking with God in a very candid and a very intimate way that the other Israelites cannot understand. It's not as though Moses is looking into the glory of God and he was some superhuman person who could withstand all the glory that was being uh, brought to bear in that encounter. But it was just that God was not holding anything back from Moses. He was revealing his plans to Moses. He was revealing his heart to Moses. And he was talking with Moses candidly about his heart and what he wanted to accomplish through the Israelite people. And what I want us to see here in this encounter is even though the Israelite people have messed up in a colossal way and it seems like all kinds of negative consequences are coming raining down upon them, they still have an intercessor. They still have one who is going before them, one who is intercessing for them between them and God. And we see that this is something that Moses has done from the very beginning. All throughout his life, even uh, at the initial encounter with the golden calf, God was uh, going to destroy the nation. He says, Moses, I'm going to rise up a nation through you. I'm going to kill off these people, and I'm just going to bring about a new nation through you. And Moses says, no, 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 please, please don't do that. Please don't do that. That, that, that would be uh, not good for your namesake in the eyes of the other nations. And God, I, please be gracious with these people. And we see time and time again Moses stepping into that gap and interceding before people who do not deserve it. And here's the thing that all of us need to be very much aware of. Right here, right now, as we sit, as I speak to you, we have an intercessor, a greater intercessor even than Moses. We have the Son of God who came and lived a sinless life, who died a death that you and I deserve, and even right now sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you and for me. That every moment of every day, Jesus, God's one and only perfect Son, is speaking to the Father on our behalf. What better intercessor, what better intercessor and what better advocate could we possibly hope for? But not only that... Because we have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, and now uh, Christ is in us and we are in Christ, 
we are also to be intercessors as well. We are a kingdom of priests and we are called to intercess for those around us. We are to intercede for our families. We're to intercede for our church. We're to intercede for our community, our nation, and our world. We are called to stand in the gap. We are called to lift other people, other people who are undeserving, people that we don't see eye to eye on, people who, who grind on our nerve and, feel, and we feel like they have, uh, they have wasted every opportunity and every uh, uh, blessing available to them. We are called to still intercede for them because you know what? That's what God does for us. I don't deserve Christ interceding on my behalf, but I thank God each and every day that he does. And shouldn't we also follow that template and be intercessors as well? And a number of passages of Scripture point to this. In Romans 8, 34, it says this, It is Christ who died and for, uh, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. 1 John 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, Therefore he, talking about Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is interceding for you and for me. I believe that even when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out to the Father and said, forgive them for they know not what they do, I don't think that he was just talking about the Romans and the Jews that were gathered before them, but I think he was also thinking of you and me. That it was our sin that took him to the cross. And it was even as he was being put to death that he was praying and interceding for us. And so we have access to God the Father. We have access to his presence because of Jesus. Notice what it says, going on to verse 12 here in Exodus 33. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, so he's in the tent of meeting, he's interceding for Israel in the presence of the Lord. He says to the Lord, he says, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by your name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight... Show me now your way, that I might know you and that I might find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. Okay, so let me just summarize what Moses is getting at here. He's saying, God, listen, you've said that I found grace in your sight. You've said that you look on me with favor. you said that you have blessed this nation. You've set them apart from all other nations. you said that you're going to do this great work in us. But God, we need to know you, and we need to know your way, and we can't do that through some intermediary. We need to know you. We need to be in your presence. I know you've said you're going to take us to the promised land, that you're going to send your angel ahead of us, but we want you. We don't want a substitute. And what I want us to see here is that we need to be hungry for the presence of God. We need, we need a personal encounter with God. That's what Moses is essentially saying here. We don't want to hear about you and learn about you and experience you through some secondhand source. We want you and you alone. And when I, when I hear that, I often think, you know, sometimes there are Christians who their only experience of God is what they experience through their pastor or through their Sunday school teacher 
or through their mother or father or grandfather or grandmother or whatever it may be. It's what other people have told them about God, but they themselves have never experienced God. And we need to understand that if you really want God's presence, if you want to experience God's presence in your life and all that that entails, you need to be dissatisfied with anything less than a personal encounter with the one true and living God. Anything less will not satisfy. And that's what Moses is crying out to God for. God, thank you that you have, you're relating to me as, a, as with a friend speaking face to face. But God, I want that for the people as well. We need you to go with us. Now notice what God says. I find this amazing. He, he just said that he wasn't going with him. He just said, I can't do it. If I go with you, I'm going to end up destroying you. But notice what he says. After Moses has interceded, not for himself, but for the people, this is what God says in verse 14. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. I love that phrase. If you highlight or underline in your Bible, I just encourage you to highlight or underline that, that phrase because that, in so many ways, encapsulates what the presence of God means for us. Rest. Wouldn't you love to just have some rest to take all the burdens that the world has laid on your shoulders or maybe even that you have placed on your own shoulders that God never intended for you and to finally just be able to shirk that, that burden and to have rest. To, in, the, in the midst of all the, the craziness and the chaos and the insecurities that are just rampant in this world, there seems to be, each year seems to be crazier than the year before, doesn't it? And it almost makes you wonder, what is 2023 going to do, Right? But isn't it amazing that when God's presence truly comes into your life, that no matter what's going on around you, you can truly have rest, peace. That even though I'm not in control, God is. He's my heavenly Father. And I know who He is even though I don't know what He's doing. And I trust in His character and I trust in what He's going to do. And so you can have peace and rest no matter what's going on around you. And so God says, you know what, Moses? Because of you and your faithfulness, because of your intercession on behalf of this people, I'm going to change my mind, and I'm going with you. Which brings up another, again, interesting point that Christians debate back and forth. Does God ever change? Does God ever change his mind? And truly the answer is no, God doesn't change his mind. Wait a second, didn't we just see in this passage that God said he wasn't going to go with them and now all of a sudden he is going to go with them after Moses interceded? The thing is, God didn't change in that encounter. The people did. Moses did. The people are, are taking off their ornaments. They are mourning the, the, the sin that they've committed against God. Moses has come before him and he's intercessing to God. And because of that, God is now able to bring his full blessings into their life. It's much like Jonah and the Ninevites. God told Jonah uh, the, to go to Nineveh and that he was to proclaim judgment to the Ninevites. And so Jonah goes throughout the, the, uh, the city of Nineveh for three days and he cries out doom and judgment to all the people. Not a word of grace, not a word of forgiveness. But the Ninevites say, you know what? Let's humble ourselves and let's pray for repentance and pray for forgiveness. And maybe, just maybe, God will forgive us. And they do. And God forgives. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. A God who's looking for an excuse to forgive and show grace. 
And so God didn't change. The people did. And it's the same way in your life and in my life. God is always loving. God is always gracious. God is always wanting to give you himself. The question is, are you ready and willing to receive it? Are you so distracted by other things that you're not aware of God's presence? You're not aware of what he's wanting to do in your life? Are you focused on him? And have you oriented your life around him, not asking him to orient himself around you and what you are wanting to do? And so God says, I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you rest. He goes on, and notice what it says. Moses, he, he likes what he's hearing, but he, he just, he's so craving the presence of God that he just has to double-check with God. Notice what he says in verse 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does go with us, do not bring us up. Uh, I'm sorry, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. I love what Moses is doing. He is so craving and he's so aware of his own need for the presence of God in his life and the life of the, uh, of the nation of Israel. He says, God, listen, I know you've just said you're going to go with us. I know that you said you're going to give us rest, but listen, don't tease me here. If you're really going to give, if, if you're not going to go with us, then please, we don't want to leave this mountain. We, want to, we don't want to leave your presence. Because if we leave here without you, we're no different from any other people on the face of the earth. It's only God's presence in our life that sets us apart. There's nothing else. We're not special. There's nothing unique about us. The only thing that sets us apart is God and God alone. And so Moses says, please, if you're not going, we don't want to go. We want to be wherever you are. It reminds me very much of uh, the way little children are sometimes. I, I know uh, when my kids uh, were little, and even uh, a lot of times now, you know, if I'm going somewhere, even if I'm going to the dump to go uh, 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 put up trash at the dump, Dad, can we go with you? I'm going to the dump. There's, there's nothing fun. It's stinky. It's, it's gross. I'm just going to throw a couple bags in the trash, and I'll be back. But they just want to be with me. What if we hungered for the presence of our Father like that? God, I don't care where you're going. God, I don't care what you're doing. I just want to be right by your side. I just need to be in your presence. I want to be in your presence because I love you. And I just want to be wherever you are. Imagine for a moment if that were true of our life. How much that would change things. How much more we would experience the presence of God in any and every part of our life. In the most mundane things and in the most life-changing things. If we just say, God, I don't care where you send me. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if it's in the slum somewhere. I don't care if it's uh, behind the scenes and no one ever knows my name. I just want to be right where you are. That's where the blessing is. That's where Moses has to be. And he's not going to give up. He's not going to let God go until he has assurance that God is going to be with him every step of the way. That's my prayer for us in 2023. That you can have all the different New Year's resolutions you want. That's fine. But have this one front and center that I want to experience the presence of God if I experience nothing else in this life. Notice what else uh, it said here. It says in verse 17, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight. 
and I know you by name. Now notice what it says next. We're just going to hit this real, real quickly, but it's important. He says in verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. He says, God, I've met with you. We've been talking very candidly back and forth, but listen, this is wonderful. You've said you're going to go with us. Thank you so much, but I just want a little bit more. Give me a little bit more of you, God. Show me your glory. And notice what he says. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is, the, uh, here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be that when my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take my, away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And again, this famous scene where Moses is in the cleft of the rock, God passes by and he just sees the back of God, whatever that means. And that's enough for Moses. I've seen the glory of the Lord as much as any mortal man can. And the, the main reason most scholars believe that we can't look in the face of God is because, again, we are broken, sinful, depraved flesh. But isn't it going to be amazing one day, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, that when all is said and done and God's redemptive story has uh, culminated and we, have, we are in the new heaven and new earth, that we'll be able to stand in the very presence of God. That we won't have this mortal flesh that is holding us back but we'll be able to see God face to face. We'll be able to walk with him and fellowship him. We'll be able to be in his presence unhindered forever and ever and ever. That will be a wonderful day. But here's the thing. We get a foretaste of that here and now. We don't have to wait for that far-flung day in the future when we get to see God face-to-face. -face. We can experience a great foretaste of that here and now, and that's what I want for each and every one of us. I began telling you about uh, the, the monk Nicholas. He later became known as uh, Brother Lawrence. His name was changed to. And he found God's presence in everything he did in life. And even though he wasn't well-learned and he wasn't well-skilled in anything, the presence of God set him apart from everyone else. I want us, I want you, I want all of us to be set apart from the rest of the world because the presence of God rests on us so much. That's my New Year's resolution. I pray that's your New Year's resolution as well. Whatever you're doing, wherever you find yourself, focus on the fact that God is with you. Keep him in the forefront of your mind and watch him glorify himself in and through your life. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. You listen to your Heavenly Father and be obedient to him in whatever he's calling you to do. And we'll give him glory through that. Let's pray. Wonderful Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, we love you. Lord, we don't deserve to be in your presence, Lord, but thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that we have access to you through your Son. And Father, I ask that you would forgive us where we have been distracted, where we have uh, settled for uh, smaller satisfactions of this life that quickly fade away. Father, I pray that we would only be satisfied in you. Lord, this upcoming year, Lord, I pray that would be the hallmark of our life. And Lord, let it change our church. Lord, let it change our community. Lord, let it change our world. 
And we ask this in Christ's wonderful and holy name. Amen.